Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 3rd, 2013, and I have got something for you I bet you never expected. How about one show <clears throat> leading off with Davis, David Crawford of Lights Out with his new business partner, Travis Sparks, with a short segment. On the the film full uh, full full scale film production of the Lights Out saga, it's going to be made into a full scale big screen in the theaters movie, and how you can help make that happen. Just a short segment because uh, I have a full schedule booked out until June. We have David and uh, Travis coming back for a a full length episode at that time, but I wanted to get them on right away. And how about this on the same show? Glenn Tate, uh, with a little bit on book five of a 299-day series, which was just released, and then an analysis of current events by Glenn and myself and how they relate to the type of work he is doing with 299 Days, the probability of actually going through something like the 299-day series, and how much time might be between then and now, and how much opportunity might exist during that time. David Crawford, Glenn Tate on one show, only on TSP. I'm bringing it to you today. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. It was very important to me when I let go a sponsor for reasons, and I'll just leave it at that, that was in the silver and gold world, that I brought you a place that you could buy silver and gold from that you could trust. And that place is JM Bullion. This is a place where if you really need to talk to the owner, you can get him on the phone and talk to him. He'll take care of your problems. He'll fix your problems. And get this, you want better pricing than the big silver houses like Monix and Atmex? You got it there. Some people ask me when I brought on TSP Mint, was I going to stop you know, working with JM Bullion? In fact, the owner of JM Bullion was even a little concerned. Absolutely not. I sell custom silver medallions minted by AOCS for AOCS currency barter use and storing and stacking silver. And JM Bullion sells everything else in the silver and gold world. So if you want your custom medallions from me, the Andy Jackson stuff, Second Amendment stuff, TSP Ant, some new stuff that's coming that's going to blow your mind, get those here. You want American Silver Eagles, you want pre-64 coins, you want generic rounds, you want generic bars, you want gold, get it from JM Bullion because it's a great price, great service, great company. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason of Directive21.com. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as though it may seem to you, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems. And why would you get your Berkey system from anybody but the Berkey guy? Hey, you need a water filter system? Get a Berkey. Don't even don't even bother with anything else. I mean, the quality's there. It looks great. It functions great. It's so economical. It's so easy to use. They come in all kinds of sizes, from little bitty travel ones to great big ones. You you know whatever you want, you can get. But why then are you going to go get your Berkey from like some guy down at the gun show? Why not get it from the Berkey guy, the nationally known 
Berkey guy, the number one distributor in the country, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. But, hey, he doesn't stop there. He's got a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs. I'm going to hunker down today and do some administrative stuff, and one of the things he's added is some Mountain House products and a 10% discount for you guys in the MSB. I'll get that added today. Jeff sent me an email yesterday like, when are you going to do it? I'm I'll get to it when I get to it, Jeff. I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, so Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, you can find out more about him at his website, directive21.com. That is the word directive. Followed by the numbers two and one uh, dot in the com. Check him out today. Uh, next up, hey, I just mentioned the member support brigade. Hey, if you join that, do you know what you get? You get discounts from the Berkey guy. Um, you get discounts from JM Bullion. Uh, you get discounts from 38 other companies, and that all costs you a whopping $50 a year, which is 18.3 cents an episode. When you are done listening to today's show, if you think, hey, man, that was worth 20 cents, consider joining the MSB. Not only will you get your money's worth, if you're buying things in the prepping world, the self-sufficiency world, the gardening world, all that stuff, long-term food storage, anything like that, you're going to get your money back by the end of the year. So you get your money's worth and your money back. How awesome is that? That's how I built the MSB. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT or a paramedic, and you email me before, not after you join. You put service discount in the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing, a little bit about your job, and I mean two or three sentences is all I need, and I will respond to you with the discount code, and you'll save even more money. The discount's so good, I don't even disclose it. Last but not least, do uh, consider getting involved with our forum at the Survival Podcast Forum. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on forum. Great people, amazing group of moderators, one of the best run forums in, 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 in the, the history of the internet as far as I'm concerned. And it's because I have very little to do with how it's run. I, that's why I'm so proud of it because I didn't touch it. I left it alone. I let it be what it was. I put together a team of moderators and said, you guys take the ship and run it. Man, they run it good. And if you really want to connect with people on a personal level, consider getting the Zello app for your smartphone or on your computer and connect with our Zello channel. You can learn more about the forum, the Zello channel, and all the other ways you can connect with us on social media at thesurvivalpodcast.com. With that wrapped up, uh, I'm pretty excited about today's show. Um, it actually has given me an incredible idea that I almost got sidetracked on the production of to start putting together. I can't tell you what it is yet. But uh, this show has spawned something in my head that's going to be awesome. But today's going to be awesome. And it's going to be awesome because of the people that I have. The first two guys I have for you today, again, David Crawford, author of The Lights Out Saga, and his new business partner, Travis Sparks, on making Lights Out into a full-on big-screen film and how you can be a part of that. And with that, hey, David, hey, Travis, guys, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> we got two at once. That's a, always a unique challenge. So I'll try to uh, direct my questions uh, to each of you individually. First, I want to let everybody know that I, we actually have uh, David and Travis booked to be back with us in June. But they have a huge announcement that I've put out a, a little bit on, and uh, I wanted to get them on because right now they've got some really hot things going with uh, David's book, uh, Becoming a Movie. So I'm going to start out with you, Travis. Why did you decide you wanted to make a movie out of uh, David's book that's well-known to most of the audience, Lights Out? <laughs> Absolutely. Pretty easy. Uh, pretty easy question here. Um, I, I was actually one of the earlier fans of, of David's work, followed him online at a couple of the sites he was posting on. Uh, i got to tell you, you know, I, this is a space that I work and live in, kind of the disaster preparedness, security space, and uh, this is the one book out of all the ones that I've read that really stuck with me. Uh, to the point that, you know, kept in touch with David over the years and, and constantly toyed around with the idea. 
uh, found myself in the, you know, the entertainment industry, if you will, a few years ago and always had this on my mind and uh, circumstances have finally lined up. Very cool. And David, for those that maybe haven't heard about the genesis of Lights Out uh, yet, or maybe haven't even heard of your book, uh, which is hard to believe anybody in the prepper world hasn't heard of it at this point, but for those people out there that maybe still have it, can you tell us how Lights Out came to be in the first place? Well, Jack, you know, I was a big reader of post-apocalyptic fiction and just, just loved it. I call it Zoomer porn. Um, and um, I had read everything I could get my hands on and found a couple of stories online. And um, it was, you know, like being a junkie waiting for these stories to get posted. Sometimes, you know, the guys would post a chapter every couple of weeks, and, you know, you'd check, you know, two or three or, or 20 times a day to see if a new chapter had gotten posted. And I finally just started, you know, tried, decided to give it a, a shot myself. And so I started posting a, a chapter at a time, and, you know, the first chapter, I think three people responded and encouraged me. And as it went along, just more and more people were jumping on board and um, and encouraging me and, and really, really helping me to keep going. Awesome. Um, so, Travis, you actually um, met David, as you mentioned earlier, and then you've now bought the rights to Lights Out to make this movie. So how'd that all come about? <laughs> David and I have, have kept in touch over the years. Um, I actually had made some similar uh, movies, and so we'd kind of kept in touch throughout that time. And, and we're constantly, you know, I, I pinged him every three to six months to say, hey, how are things going? Uh, for a while there, uh, someone else had bought the option to uh, to make the movie, and uh, they never followed through on that. So, uh, ironically enough, I, I happened to have called him, I think, David, it was within uh, four hours of the expiration of uh, the other folks' rights, uh, yeah. quickly organize my legal team and uh, move quickly to lock this thing in. Very, very cool. Um, David, uh, how do you feel about finally seeing Lights Out on a, on a movie screen? I mean, this is something that's been talked about before, right? Right, right. It's it's really a dream come true. And, and not only that, but I'm so happy that Travis is doing it because, you know, Travis is in our culture. He He is a prepper. And he understands how important this is. And, you know, he's not doing this to make money off of it. Although, you know, I think both of us are staunch capitalists. And, you know, I know I haven't sent any checks back yet. But, um, you know, the whole reason he wants to do it is the reason I wrote the book to begin with. And that's to educate and inform people and, you know, try to get them on board. Because, you know, if things really go bad for us, the more people that are prepared, the better off we all are. I completely agree with that. Okay, very cool. So um, the reason I had you guys come on early for just a short segment on this, and I'm sure people want to know more, and that's why we have you booked to come back in a couple of months when there's room in the schedule for you, but, but the reason for this is because you guys actually need some help right now, and you've got a lot of stuff going on with the pre-production. So could I, you guys each take your own time to, you know, Travis, you go first, and David, you can wrap it up. What can people do to get involved and to help you with this project? Sure, uh, and I'll give a quick explanation for why uh, we need their help. You know, if I was making a, a typical for-profit movie, I, w I would really, quite honestly, butcher the story. I'd hire some big names. You know, we'd have just enough action to kind of make this thing compelling. Uh, you know, fill the story with a lot of dialogue, and <laughs> we, the fans, would be pretty horror-struck. Um, that's not what we want to do. 
Uh, what that means is we can't simply call on the typical Hollywood funding engines, which are really for profit, you know, and, and actually make this story the way we want to see it told. Uh, really, the only way to do that is, is to ask our fans to support us and, and see this project made, uh, stay true to the story, have it be the length that we want, uh, and involve, quite honestly, actors who share our values, you know. So uh, we've started a crowdfunding campaign. Um, you can go to our website at lightsoutsaga.com. That'll take you to our Indiegogo site as of right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, look at the packages we have. Look at the things we can give as a thank you for your support and consider what you can do to help us. Very cool. David, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, besides what Travis said, you know, the other thing people can help us do is just get the word out. You know, um, um, this has already spread through the prepping community pretty well. But, you know, we need to reach other people, too. So, you know, just just let people know that, you know, this is this is this is going to be a badass movie. Let me tell you, um, I got to go watch them film the uh, the teaser trailer that we did last weekend. And these guys are the real deal. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of what you're going to see in this trailer when it comes out, I, I believe, next week sometime. Um, it's it's going to be fantastic. This is really going to be a great movie. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Um, I, I know of Travis's work. David, I know you over the years. We've, we've talked quite a bit, and um, your your work is well-known. Uh, and when I say your work, I don't just mean your work in writing the book. I mean your work in the prepper community and with helping people, with responding to people. So uh, I am happy to throw the full endorsement of the Survival Podcast and our community behind you and, and ask guys to get over to your site and consider uh, making a, a – I would say – I wouldn't even look at this as a donation. I would call it an investment and with some level of return as well on not just seeing something come to – come to fruition, but you guys are offering gear, uh, higher donations at dinner, uh, signed copies of the movie. There's a, a whole group of packages there, and I think that it's important that people realize that when someone does something like an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter or anything, it's not like charity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's commerce between equals and helping with the funding of something that you see is important. And I've seen a lot of stuff come out in the prepping community, and I've seen exactly what Travis mentioned. Things get butchered, uh, misconstrued, and I know that it had, to be, it had to be very important to you, David, that this was true to your work, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, again, the website, uh, you guys can go learn more about this, is lightsoutsaga.com. And with that, hey, Travis and, uh, and David both, thank you guys for being with us here today on a short segment. In spite of some technical challenges, I think it went pretty well. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I want you to know we appreciate what you do for the prepper community, too. I think I, think I say that for all of us. Well, thanks, David. And uh, thanks, Travis. And uh, we'll get you guys back on for a uh, complete full in-depth interview in about two months. Sounds Look forward good. to it. All right, folks. Well, uh, I wanted to get those guys on because they're in such a push to try to, to, uh, to, to build funding and build momentum for this film. And uh, like many of you, one of the first things that I uh, came to find as I dug deeper into the world of preparedness was the book Lights Out, and uh, it, it was a, a fascinating read. Uh, and I read the original PDF, you know, non-professionally edited version, uh, like many of you did. In fact, 
it was a listener in the early days of the show that that told me about Lights Out, and it's it, I do feel that in the the modern, uh, specifically the online prepper world forums and things like that, it is kind of. Uh, It, it's kind of a, 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 I don't know, maybe a collective, uh, a collective possession almost. That it's, it's something that we all feel like we have a little bit of a, of a stake in. And so if you'd consider helping out David, it would mean a lot to me. And I think his contributions to the movement as a whole through his work with Lights Out and just being a great member specifically of the AR-15, uh, uh, survival forum is, is huge as well. And, uh, you know, they're not asking for money for nothing folks they uh they do have some packages there and some things that basically you're buying uh in advance and by doing so you're helping to fund the film so uh check that out now um this is great because i have two of my favorite uh prepper authors uh, on one show uh david had to be short because you know i just found out about what he was doing with this a couple weeks ago we're booking people in june right now so i, I got him on and i thought what a great thing to do to team them up with with one of my other favorite authors and one that's done the same type of thing but right in our own forum with a, a book series, a 10-book series called 299 Days, which is an incredible narrative uh, about a very, very likely scenario of economic collapse and failure in the United States resulting in partial spotty failures throughout the country. It's uh, it's actually a very realistic component or a very realistic type of story as to what you might expect with uh, with enough excitement uh, for anybody, yet uh, grounded in a lot of fact. And again, Glenn, uh, for those that don't know, is writing under a pen name. Glenn Tate is not his real name. He keeps his real identity uh, secure because, and not because I don't want anybody to know I'm a prepper or anything like that, because of his job. He is actually an attorney uh, in Washington State. Uh, with a direct view, uh, a catbird seat, if you will, into the underpinnings of government and government spending and government waste and listens to the people that are spending the money and wasting the money, blowing the money, and even watches as they admit among themselves that this can't go on forever and hears those inside conversations none of us are privy to. That's given him a very unique uh, vantage point into this, I think more unique than most people that have written a similar type of story. And uh, so we have him on today. We're going to talk a little bit about his book and some announcements and things that are coming up. And then we're going to get really deep uh, into some current events and how they uh, how they make a person with his viewpoint feel and, and where he and I agree and where maybe we disagree a little bit and uh, just kind of have a great conversation with a great guy that is a TSP forum moderator, a great member of the community, and the author of a great series of books. And with that, hey, Glenn, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. All right, folks, and with that, I'd like to say welcome back yet again, Mr. Glenn Tate. Well, thank you, Jack. Love being here, and uh, thanks for having me. So last time I had you on, I jumped the gun. I thought book five was going to be out. It wasn't yet because you made some changes, but it's out now, right? It is out now. came out um, in late uh, March, and um, I've been very excited about it. There have been some people going through some withdrawals, which I wholeheartedly um, encourage. I mean, the more the withdrawals, the better. And um, so it's out, and some people are getting their fixes, and um, that's good stuff. So uh, it took a little extra time to put out, but we um, – we we did some we got under the hood and improved it quite a bit and added some chapters so 
uh, it was, I think, well worth the wait, and the reaction I'm getting indicates that a lot of other people think it was worth the wait. So thank you for being patient, everybody. Awesome. And, and for people that maybe, you know, found Survival Podcast last week, and they know you're the author of 299 Days, but they don't know what the hell 299 Days is or means or how many books are going to be, could you give them maybe, you know, the, the one to two minute explanation of the storyline and uh, kind of the process that we're going through here with this multi-book release formula? Yeah, you bet. Um, 299 Days is a, is a 10 book series. And as I mentioned, book five is now out. Um, books six through 10 will be coming out in the, in the next few months. Um, and it's a, it's a story, um, about me, basically. Um, um, I'm the main character, um, cause I get to do that, cause I wrote the book and I can, you know, make myself cool or whatever I want to do. And, um, it's fiction, of course. <laughs> but, um, Anyway, it's 10 books. It's about me, a guy who um, realized, a suburban guy who realized he needs to prep and um, has a, a job in a very unique position where he gets an insight um, into state government in my state, Washington State, um, and sees what's coming and prepares a lot of resistance, um, primarily from his wife. Um, a lot of people think he's crazy, keeps doing it, preps in secret. Um, there's a big collapse, and the reasons for it are explained. By the way, they're explained in, in a story way, not in a graphs and charts economic kind of way. And uh, there's a big collapse. Um, he takes off and goes to his cabin, joined up by his crew, uh, his, his guys that he's with, and the community out there uh, at the cabin area forms up and becomes a, um, not self-sufficient, but a, lar- a, a pretty pretty self-reliant um, community and, and describing the, what happens and how a community can form up to be a good one and, and some of the pitfalls that are out there. And there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of um, things that don't go smoothly. Um, there's no comic book sense to this. You know, this is not everybody's happy and everything goes great and the gunfights, the good guys always win and, and all that other stuff. And then there's some visitors. That's where book five comes in. Some visitor, visitors arrive at the beach and um, they, uh, I won't give away too much, but um, the visitors um, are some good guys, and there's going to be a whole lot more good guys landing on the beach. <laughs> and um, then uh, books 6 through 10 describe the, a, uh, a guerrilla unit, um, for lack of a better term, that forms up um, out at the cabin area and all of the, the planning and all of the, the human interest stuff that goes with that. Um, a lot of people struggle with, geez, you know, should I... Should I join this guerrilla group? I mean, because the country is completely blown apart and just, you know, not completely. It's a partial collapse. But, I mean, things are not normal and people struggle. And, geez, this is crazy. I mean, this can't really be happening, that kind of thing. And uh, then there's a uh, big fight. And then there's uh, there's a book at the end, um, which I'll... Yeah, you have a big announcement, right? Yeah, I do. Um, this is really, really cool. Uh, originally, there were ten books. There's still going to be ten books, by the way. And... Um, what, I was writing the very first, it's not even a chapter, it's chapter zero, it's the prologue really, and um, there are 22 um, good guys, I won't give it away because it's in later books, so there are 22 good guys, my character is one of them, and there were, this number 43 popped in my head, I'm like, where's this coming from, I don't know, and I was writing about the um, the Washington State Legislature, the new one, after you know, stuff happens and there's a new good legislature, um, is going to hand out uh, honorary colonelships, you know, kind of like Colonel Sanders only. <laughs> for Got real. you. 
And um, the Kentucky Colonels, I guess, kind of an honorary thing. And my character is one of them. But there were only 22 people that were in his kind of category. So I was thinking to myself, 43, where's this number coming from? And don't mean to get heavy on anybody, but I kept hearing, thinking, no, nope, needs to be 43. So I said, okay. And I wrote 43 in there having no idea what significance that had. Well, that was about two years ago. And um, recently... I realized that we needed to make sure these books were had plenty of chapters in them and were good and thick and you know we're a value basically for people. I mean if they're going to spend their money with us, we're going to give them as much story as we possibly can. So we started backfilling some of the books with chapters from previous books and then we ran out. We only had 9 books and then it hit me. Book 10, I'm going to write, it's going to be brand new and it's going to be the 43 Colonels the 43 honorary colonels at the Washington legislature names. And these 43 colonels, not, it's, most of them are not military people. Most of them are regular people who helped um, clean house and take care of things. And they helped in unusual ways, and they're regular people. Um, they, it, you know, One, I'm not going to give away a ton of stuff, but this will give people a flavor of one of the 43 colonels uh, is a sheriff uh, in Washington state. It's loosely based on a, on a real sheriff. Who tells the federal government that um, they have they have no they have no jurisdiction here and they're not going to violate the Constitution and stands up, you know it it costs him quite a bit to do that takes a toll, and so it describes that it describes uh, a nurse who puts a hospital together in a very unusual way and I won't give away a bunch of details but it's not your usual somebody starts a hospital thing how it happens is unusual and so she is one of the honorary colonels. So the, the book 10 is going to be the story of each one of these regular people, largely regular people, who helped rebuild and help get things done in kind of unusual ways. And so I'm really excited about it. And, and Jack, you know, it's, it's an announcement, you know, for this show, and you're the first to hear about it. So um, really excited about that. So that's going to be book 10 is going to be the 43 colonels. So people are going to get more stuff and... Uh, for free. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Here's what I like about that angle. When you write a story, even a series of novels like this that, that tie together, there's at certain points along the storyline where the author just has to say, I can't cram everything in that's going on, so we just have to assume that there was some level of support in this way, or that somebody else took care of this, and then when you get to the end of that story, you go, okay, well, that's all nice and well, but how the hell did this happen, or who the hell made that happen? And then being able to go back and kind of look at this as an afterlog and see... Well, when you know we, you know, there was this this resurgence of medical treatment in the area. Here's the person that did it. Maybe that's not a perfect example because I haven't read the other books yet because I'm not out yet and I don't know the, the the kernels right. So, but but that type of an angle to be able to kind of go back and look at the whole aftermath and say here was a key player and now the reader has this kind of attachment to the storyline and then it's like looking back and it's almost like finding out in a, a real-life event, like someone that helped you, you didn't even know was there. Exactly. exactly. And people are going to see all the help, all the skill sets, all the experiences that it takes to put a, a, a state back together, basically. And uh, they're also going to see that they're regular people just like them. And um, I think that's, that's kind of what's missing in, in a lot of prepper fiction is the this-could-be-me aspect. Because, And why do I say that? Because... 
I'm nothing special. I'm a regular guy. Um, I've written this story. It's it's extremely popular. It's going gangbusters, and that to me seems odd because I'm a regular guy. I mean, how could I do this? Well, regular <laughs> can do tons and tons of amazing things, especially when conditions are that they need to to save themselves, they need to save their family, they need to save others. People do amazing things. They rise to the occasion, and we're going to see 43 examples of regular people rising to, to occasions, and then it's going to fill in, like you were mentioning, a lot of the, the extra details of, of things that went on. So I haven't been this enthused about writing anything you know, since I wrote the first books, and I, I cannot wait. I'm, I'm getting back up early again like I have been, and I write and write, and I'm thinking of stories, and it's like uh, in my head, it just, I won't my head won't stop with all these ideas for all the kernels. I mean, it's it's a fantastic experience. So, extremely excited about it. Very cool. You know, and the thing is that your entire premise is a partial collapse based on a crumbling economy. And I think we can look around and see all types of examples that are, you know, uh, almost prophecies that one day that reckoning is going to have to happen. One of the latest things that happened, and I kind of like your take on it and how you're seeing people react to it, is in Cyprus. Now, there's two stories in Cyprus, one that everybody's talking about, and the other one I think is the one that the media is not talking about that's more important. The story is this country's bank failures, and they're grabbing money, and this is a catastrophe, and it could send the whole world off the cliff, and I think that's just sensationalism. The GDP of Cyprus is about $25 billion. The GDP of Houston, Texas is like, $425 billion. All right, so it's, it, Cyprus itself is a mouse fart uh, on the global economic scene. But to me, this is a telling formula of things to come when other banks fail. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. The, the percent of economy in the world that, that Cyprus has is, is nothing, and it's, it's not a big deal with that. But I view things from a political lens because it's what I do and it's how I think. And the second I saw that headline about Cyprus, I thought to myself, this is a test. And they are figuring out how much they can get away with. And they, you know, World Banks, I don't even know who they are. I don't even care who they are. I mean, it doesn't matter. But the banks, um, the politicians are figuring out what they can get away with. And you'll notice they tested something early, which was um, everybody is going to pay a tax. You know, it was going to be 10% for some. It was going to be 6.5%. And then the numbers started moving around. And then all of a sudden, on a dime, it seems, they switched around and they said, okay, there's going to be $100,000 of you know, deposit insurance, kind of like our FDIC is, or 100000 Which meant they were keeping their word because it wasn't like they came up with that idea. That was already the case. They were just reneging. And then when I, I think what happened is they were afraid that Cyprus was going to burn. And yeah. it scared the shit out of them, and then they came up with this new plan. Yep, exactly. And then they figured out how to take even more um, of some people's money and then save, you know, the people under 100,000 euros. To me, that's all politics. They figure they can get away with it uh, like taking more from some people, and the the deposit insurance is a big deal because if that happened in little teeny Cyprus, a lot of people throughout the world, a lot of people in the U.S., for example, would say, "Huh, this this deposit insurance, all this money I have in the bank, it really doesn't mean anything. I don't get my deposit insurance. I'm going to start taking money out of the bank. You know, some people might take it out quickly, some people might take it out slowly. I'm going to 
quit putting money in the bank. I'm going to quit buying mutual funds. I'm going to quit putting money in 401k because it's just paper and zeros and ones, and they're, they're going to take it. So they had to um, not take the deposit insurance stuff because they knew of the political consequence. I don't mean like getting kicked out of office. I mean political in the sense of probably – geopolitical here, the worldwide yeah. repercussions, right? Political in the sense of hundreds of millions of people going, I'm about to get screwed. I better do something to protect myself. I'm taking all my money out. And instead of a bank run in Cyprus, we would have a bank run across the world. And you, you can control money going in and out of Cyprus to an extent. You cannot control money coming out of banks all over the world. And so it, to me, it was, it was all politics. It was a test. And I think that they got the result they wanted. They figured out how far they can go. And so I would thoroughly expect a, a similar thing in other countries. It'll probably be you know, some of the Euro countries that are in bad shape, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece. I mean, Greece is already you know, pretty much done for anyway. And then it'll, it'll start migrating elsewhere, and they'll figure out how to do it. And so um, look for it. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Of course, nobody does. But um, look for that. You know, in the U.S., and I'll tell you something. My cash reserves after Cyprus went way up. Um, I got enough cash to last for you know a period of time, um, and thank goodness because can you imagine going to the ATM and you can only get a couple hundred bucks out at a time? I mean, that's entirely possible. Um, well, they closed the banks over there because everybody went ape shit. In fact, what they did is they closed the banks and then told everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's what I think that people are under the impression of that, like, well, maybe like if this would happen, I would just go get my money out of the bank and be huh. part of that bank run. Well, the people that make the bank runs are going to be the ones that do it before, not after. They're going to be the connected folks who get the inside information. It happens all the time, everywhere, throughout history, in every country. Insiders get special information and all that. Here's here's another reason why you, people just can't in America or anywhere else go to the bank and get their money out. There's this great picture, don't know if you saw it, um, a bunch of container cars um, on semi-trucks being guarded by one um, uh, Cypriot um, police officer. <laughs> container cars, semi-trailers, right? Yeah. Apparently, supposedly full of euros in cash, like stacks and stacks of cash that were going to be used to go feed all the ATM machines. Think about this. It's a little teeny country with a little teeny speck of the economy of the world. There's physically not enough cash <laughs> in the United States for them to put in all the ATM machines or put in all the banks. I mean, if even a small fraction of people in this country went into a bank on a given day and wanted a small fraction of the money they have in the bank, um, there's not enough. It, it's impossible. There's 3% of the total M3 exists as cash. Yep. And the M3, for those that don't know, is all the money, everybody's money, from the little old lady to Bill Gates. And you take the total number of dollars that exist in circulation, 3% exists as coin or cash. And let's say, you know, you, you know somebody credible who said in three days, um, you know, this is going to happen. You, you try to get your money out of a 401k. Oh, there's a lot of paperwork. There are a lot of forms. Oh, we're yeah. It's Columbus Day or whatever, you know? <laughs> holiday. They'd oh, because, Glenn, they would never do that, would they? Would they never coincide their move their movement along with a, a naturally occurring holiday that closes the banking systems? They wouldn't do that, would they? Well, it's not like they sit around <laughs> really, really smart people with high IQs don't have these things planned out because 
there's trillions of dollars at stake and there's people's lives at stake, you know what? People are going to show up with their best game and figure out how to do this stuff. And so, yeah, they would. And then that would happen. So, that, you know, I, I wish, I wish um, I didn't have so much of, of my family's money in things, you know, paper stuff. Um, I've lost that battle. I mean, I can't, I can't convince my wife to take it all. And I wouldn't take it all out either. I mean, I'm a pretty balanced guy. I like to be rational. But I have, I have solved this problem in my mind um, by having cash um, on hand and um, lots of food um, yeah. and lots of guns and a lot of ammunition. And so I've got, I've got assets. Um, you know, that ammunition is a precious metal, and it's more and more precious, I think, every day. And so I've diversified, if you will. And um, I'm glad I did because this Cyprus thing, you know, it would affect everybody. It would affect me and others, you know, like you and me and, and a lot of people listening who have taken some steps, affect us a lot less. And when it's affecting us a lot less, when we're not standing in a line at an ATM for six hours and getting in a fist fight because somebody cuts in line, there's going to be a lot of that, by the way. When we're not sitting in line for six hours, we're able to at a more leisurely pace get out to the bug out location. We're able to round up our family. We're able to pack and make sure that you know, we have all the, the medicines that maybe people need prescription-wise and everything. So, you know, there's the real advantage um, to that. We're going to not be in the big rush like everybody else. So, people- I do have an exit strategy for you to get the spouse on board with the financial exit strategy. We're going we're gonna to skip ahead of the show and then pull back so we don't go into it early. But we're, you and I are going to talk about a coming boom cycle before this final bust. Yep. Now would be the time to say... When do we take our profits? <laughs> right? And plan the exit based on a profit Great. in advance. Because now you're talking about harvesting a profit versus bailing because of fear. You know, I think it'd be easy for people to say to kind of a traditional spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, domestic partner, I don't care, whatever, someone else in, in your life, you know what, uh, traditionalist, you're always saying, uh, buy low, sell high, right? Well, okay, let's do that. We bought low, let's sell high. Let's let's, let's set a target for when we sell this stock or when we sell this fund. This mainstream, you know, financial planner CNBC approach that you seem to think is such a good idea. Okay, I take that sarcasm part out of it, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's do what you say and let's uh, let's do a little profit taking. It oh, and let's take all the profits and you know. Um, Gold and silver uh, seem to be a pretty good idea. Uh, some real estate, um, you know, especially bug outable. That's a word I invented today. Bug outable. Outable <laughs> would be a good idea. And it's not a bug out location, honey. It's a vacation home. And Correct. You could you you could manage this because I think I think we have a fair amount of time because I think you're right. There's going to be a boom and and then a bust. And so it's not like we got to stop watching. we got to get this done in the next 18 minutes because the world's going to end in 18 minutes. There's time to do this stuff. And, and you know, a lot of this stuff, assets and prepping and all these other things, it takes time to do it right because you can freak out and do a bad job of it. Um, you could cash out your 401K tomorrow and buy ammunition at a dollar a round, and that's a terrible idea because you're going to pay a lot of taxes, and you're ba- you're paying way too much for ammunition, for example. So you're paying a dollar a round, which is too high, and that that market's already starting to correct. But you're not paying a dollar a round; you're going to end up paying two dollars a round because of the interest and penalties. Exactly. So yeah, there is some time to do this the smart way. So people, hopefully, you know, will do it the smart way. Now, we're going to get into this boom in a minute, but we do have some things going on that are really telling about where we're headed. 
one you and I talked about off air, and that is that uh, Fort Stockton has long been in bankruptcy. I mean, realistically, the country's in bankruptcy, but I mean, it has been, but they've been trying to officially do it, and they were just given a judgment this week that says, yeah, you guys can actually proceed with a bankruptcy. So now we have a clear-cut case of not just a city in receivership, but formally declaring bankruptcy protection, which basically is a get-out-of-jail-free card to renege on promised pensions and things like that. Yep, and this is going to be a domino thing. The amounts of money um, are so huge. Um, um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Stockton, Chicago. Um, currently, um, has a hundred million dollars a year of pension liabilities. In ten years, Chicago says. So these are government figures. So don't believe them. Uh, Chicago says in ten years it'll be six hundred million. Well, come on, it'll probably be closer to a trillion. So you've got a, a trillion with a T dollars for sure. <sighs> liability for pensions um and of course baby boomers are are retiring now and and all of that um and so you're going to have just absurd sums of money i mean the kind of money that the human mind actually cannot conceive of and there's only one way out of it well there's two ways there's one way out of it, and that's to declare bankruptcy and say we're bankrupt we don't owe you the money anymore and so go pound sand now that has enormous political ramifications um, all those retirees vote, by the way. Uh, <laughs> well, and it, also this, all of those re- those people have planned on having that money, and they are part of our economy with that money. And you might be thinking to yourself out there, look, I work for myself. I don't have any of this. I don't care. I've taken care of my own retirement. Th- those people not getting their money can tank the economy and damage people that are not part of that system. Exactly. The retirees um, are not going to have money that they otherwise would spend on things, and that goes into the economy. Um, and I, there's two ways to do this. Second would be massive inflation, so that a trillion dollars ten years from now buys you a cup of coffee, um, and that's already going on. And that also, I think, is part of the plan, part of the way to quote pay this stuff, not really pay it, but to pay it. Is um, I mean we've we've seen it that it's not even in dispute. Nobody. Nobody disputes the fact that the Federal Reserve is consciously and intentionally creating inflation. Now, the Federal- Including Ben Bernanke. If you said, what's the plan, he'd say inflation. I mean, it, it's not – no one denies this. This isn't conspiracy stuff. This is their own documents say we're doing this and we're doing it intentionally, but they call it managed and controlled inflation. Yeah, they're proud of it. I mean, they say, hey, we're super smart. We got really high IQs. We're really smart. We're going to inflate the money, but – Trust us, we are the really smart guys, and you know what? We can keep a lid on this. Really? What country ever in history has ever kept a lid on it when it's inflation to this kind of degree? It's never, ever been controllable, and so it's just going to – it's going to be terrible. So inflation is going to be a bad thing. And by the way, you know, I was talking about trillion dollars for a cup of coffee, and and I should, you know, be a little bit more realistic. Inflation doesn't just mean massive hyperinflation, you know. Correct. Stuff and the whole wheelbarrow, you know, and the person full of cash, and the person takes the wheelbarrow because it's worth more than the wheelbarrow full of cash. It doesn't have to be that bad. I mean, the seventies no. um, in the U.S. Um, had pretty bad inflation. You know, I mean, depends on what figures you look at. Ten, ten percent a year, five, maybe fifteen. I mean, even that amount of inflation is a really, really big deal. So don't be looking for the trillion dollar cup of coffee and say, okay, finally, now we have it. No, no, no. It comes, it sneaks up on you. It's already here. The fact that they don't count 
in the consumer price index, you know, which is what they use, the basket of goods they use to measure inflation, they don't put food and energy in there. Oh, <laughs> energy. Who needs food and energy? I don't know. Everyone. And so the fact they're not counting that stuff um, ought to tell you that. And the way they got to not counting it, because let's look at back at the, the, old, the what they called core inflation in the past, right? So we had a ri- we original inflation index, and then it started to run away. So what did they do? First thing, they didn't throw food out. They just changed the comparison. So the, the old number maybe had steak, right? And then they just changed it to beef and went to ground chuck and said, see, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Then when they came up with the CPI, which I call the CPI, <laughs> they just took food out. They said it's too volatile. It can go up this month and down next month. So it's not a reliable indicator and energy. And the, the two biggest needs a human being have in addition to housing would be food and energy. And it's worse than that because energy affects the price of everything. And so when energy goes up, everything else indirectly goes up. So that's a, a particularly bad one to take out of the equation. And well, see, that's their excuse, though. When energy goes up, everything goes up. So the rest of the stuff goes up, so don't worry about it. Except the main thing that it drives up is food, which you also took out. Exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. Everything goes up because of energy. Isn't this supposed to be a measurement of what stuff costs? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Now I do have a third way this this happens. The third way is a planned reindexing of the currency, which is basically in, hidden inflation. So eventually they just come out with a new dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like this has never been done before, even in our own country. And I think that is the eventual plan that they're going to hit a reset button at some point. But I think it turns. I think it makes your story happen. I think that's where you end up there. Mm-hmm. Think of the reaction, and I'm talking. Political. When I say political reaction, I don't mean you know elections and stuff. Because if this kind of stuff happens, we won't have an election for a long time. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking politics, like people saying, "I'm outraged. I'm going to a protest, and you know, some bricks going through some windows, some police cars getting overturned." Well, that's what I mean by politics in this sort of situation. <laughs> World history. It's exactly what happens. I mean, I think you start seeing Congress clowns dragged out in the street. I mean, I, that's I'm not advocating it. I'm saying that's the natural result when this kind of crap happens. Exactly. It happens. It happens everywhere. And those folks will get scarce and, and they'll just run and hide. And and there's going to be, you know, chaos. And I don't mean Mad Max, you know, apocalyptic cannibal chaos. I mean, just L.A. riot kind of stuff. And I, I see that happening for quite a while and then calming down and then there's kind of low-grade badness, I guess. Uh, look at Argentina around 2000 um, sure. and that kind of stuff and you know, people just kind of putting up with it and life is really, really terrible, but it's tolerable. That's the collapse I'm talking about. It's described in, in, at length um, from various viewpoints um, in the book. So that's and that's kind of what I foresee. Don't know when, but here's what I do know. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's, it's called mathematics. Yep. Um, and, and, and we don't know exactly how it's going to happen. I keep saying what you're going to see is a, a global economic shift that's already occurring. Here's another recent event. So I started talking – you remember this crazy redneck in his Jetta back in 2008, 2009 about the BRIC alliance, the Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And people were saying, there is no BRIC alliance. It's a clever term that was made up. It's not official, whatever. So last week comes out that now it's not the BRIC. It's the BRICS with an S. 
Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then a little bitty country called South Africa, which I'm not being facetious, really is little, but is the gateway to the development of Africa because all of the other advanced nations in Africa, uh, like Egypt, are in the middle of the freaking Middle East. So South Africa literally is as far away from that mess as you can get. So these five guys get together and decide they're going to start their own bank specifically to compete with the IMF and the World Bank. Now, this is 47% of the population of planet Earth developing their own new financial paradigm. And the only thing that the mainstream media was talking about was Cyprus. To me, this is a much bigger story. Yep, and here's some more fallout from that. And this happened yesterday um, from the day we're recording this. China and Australia announced they're going to trade with each other in Chinese currency or other non-U.S. currency. So the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, which means it has value even though it shouldn't. <laughs> yep. It, that's breaking apart. Uh, China and Russia have already started um, trading oil um, in other currencies other than dollars. It doesn't matter what currency it's traded in. The fact, the fact that it's not dollars is basically breaking the whole petrodollar Bretton Woods scheme apart. Yep, and it, and all it takes is is people realizing, people in the world uh, realizing that these dollars aren't the magic they used to be. And then they don't need them, and they start selling them. And when they start selling them, the price goes down like anything else. And when the price of your currency goes down, that means the value goes down, which means it takes more of it to get the same amount of stuff, which is inflation. That's how Gee, it Gee, inflation, where'd that come from? It, it, it's really – now, here's the, 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 the telling part of the Australia-Chinese uh, story. When Russia and China do something like that, the average person looks at that and goes – you know, we have decent relationships with China and Russia now, but they're not exactly our friends. When you look at Australia, you see probably other than the United Kingdom and Israel, America's staunchest ally, maybe Canada, like they all go in that group together. And you could make a case for who's the staunchest ally out of that group. Japan probably files in there somewhere. You have one of our top five friends in the world going, sorry, mate, it's just business. Yep. That is, if this was India and China, I would say, eh, you know, again, there's a, we have a good relationship with India, but they're not exactly what you would call a real partner. Australia is a global partner for America. And they've just basically thumbed their nose at the petrodollar. And what I keep trying to explain to people, I don't think people understand this. Imagine that every transaction in America had to take place with oranges. Okay, so if, no matter what you were trading, if you were in Maine and you were trading lobster for oil with Texas, before you conducted the transaction, you had to acquire oranges and then convert them back on the other end of the stream. Don't you think that would give an amazing economic advantage to, oh, I don't know, California and Florida? All right. Okay, that is exactly how the global petrodollar system works. If you want to do anything in global transactions, what you're supposed to do through the IMF and World Bank is, let's say you are the nation of Glenn and I am the nation of Jack, and we want to, and I want to sell you cotton, right? And you use Glenn bills and I use Jack bills. You would think you would just give me the Glenn bills and I would convert them to Jack bills and then I would give you your cotton. But the way it works today is you take your Glenn bills, change them into dollars, give me dollars, and I have to change my dollars into Jack bills to put them into my local economy. That means that whoever makes the dollars has a decided advantage to trade throughout the world, which I consider it an unfair advantage, but let's be frank, we built what we have with it. So that's, that's what's dying right there. That's what's going away. The other side is, and this is the part that even people that explain it the way I just did never explain, 
Banks make money when it when money moves. It doesn't matter if it, it doesn't matter if they're actually part of the transaction or not. As long as they process it, and as long as it's being processed in dollars, you have this alliance between basically the eurozone and America that share that profit through the IMF and control the IMF. They're basically making money when China and Australia do business right now, not just having an advantage. And basically, why wouldn't China or China and Australia? Why wouldn't China and Australia say, you know, we don't think we want to do that anymore? It's like when you you go on a trip and and you come back to the U.S. and uh, or you're going on a trip and you can buy currency. Let's say you're going to go to. We'll keep it simple. You're going to Canada and you and they don't you know and you want some Canadian money. So you go and you you buy Canadian money and you know that it's worth a certain amount of money, but you have to pay more than that in dollars. So you get. You know, the bank's making some money for giving you the Canadian dollars. So you get the Canadian dollars. It's like that. The, the United States is like that little kiosk in the airport that's making a ton of money buying and selling this money. <laughs> On the entire global domestic product, right, the, the GDP of the world is being processed in dollars right now. Yep. And a lot of people in America, and I, I want to be clear, America, fantastic country, I think the greatest country in the history of the world. I don't mean that in a USA rah, rah, rah way. I mean, sure. objectively speaking. Now, the problem, though, is that a lot of people in America, your average citizen, they think that things in America, our standard of living is so great because we're just awesome. We just are, and we're, we're entitled to it. We're entitled to it. We're Americans, yeah. and that's why everything's awesome, and it's the way it is. It's the way it's always going to be. That's not true. We are a great country, no question. However, the reason we have this standard of living, in large part, um, is because we're the country that owns the oranges. <laughs> exactly. We have all the orange groves. And when, when there's a big blight and uh, oranges you know, are no longer you know, used, um, all of a sudden it's not going to be so pretty. And we're going to go from, you know, instead of zero to 60, we're going to go from 60 to zero. We're going to plunge in our standard of living. And people are going to be dismayed. We're going to go from being on top to being in the middle or towards the bottom and people politically, culturally, um, religiously, they're going to look around and say, what? And then the, the crazy, you know, answers to that question from extremists and crazy politicians start springing up and that's a problem. So we're in for a huge shock and people are not going to by and large react to it. Well, at least initially now after the initial shock wears off, um, they're going to get their stuff together, and because we are a great country with great people, we're going to rebuild the thing. It's going to take a while, but that's the long term, you know, that I see. Yeah, I think the other thing is we have to accept. I mean, we not not Jack and Glenn, but the people of this nation have to accept a lot of responsibility for this for ourselves. Our greatness has made us weak, and you can look at civilization after civilization that has done this. Uh, civilization, this country in in eighteen ninety was considered by the rest of the world a third world country. had potential, but it was the developing world. We were the shit as far as people were concerned. I don't mean that in the good way kids say it, right? We were crap, but we had a lot of agricultural land. At least we had that, and we were on the rise. We did rise. We came through the, the, the Great Depression. We did all of that stuff. We won World War II. We built this great incredible nation that did things that no other nation even conceived of, like putting a man on the moon. And then we said, I don't want my children to have to go through what I did collectively. And we ended up with a boomer generation that was, 
you know, not weak, but nowhere near as strong as the generation that brought them. We ended up with the tweeners and the Gen Xers, and we took another step down. And these kids today, you know, they're calling the millennials and the, the internet natives. These kids have zero resiliency. I mean, I just put a picture on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it, but it was an Easter egg hunt being conducted in a parking lot, devoid of all vehicles, with the eggs sitting out in the open. <laughs> and people said, Jack, why are you so upset over that? I'm like, because it's like finding a tumor. It's a symptom of the bigger problem. And the long, actually, in some ways, the longer it takes for this to happen, the worse we are, because the more of those people that came up in these generations are going to be the ones in charge, and they don't know what to do when they fail, let alone when everybody fails. Yeah, in a lot of ways, we've become a nation of the Kardashians. You know, that we've... Uh. TV and we laugh and we go, boy, those people are messed up and pampered and out of touch. Well, in some way, you know, generally speaking, a lot of the country is like that. And when did we become the Kardashians? <laughs> I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, man, I've been to parts of the world where poor means poor. And if you took a person from that part of the world and brought them here and showed them what a poor person lives like in this country – they would think that person's wealthy beyond imagination because mm-hmm. they have a color TV and they put food on the table every day. And the fact that we have obese, poor people is extremely telling. If you go to Honduras and you find a poor person, let me tell you something. They ain't. They ain't obese. Mm-hmm. Poor and obese doesn't happen anywhere except in Europe and, and, and I'd say North America. Mm-hmm. And and think about when when all the – the money's gone, and and all the all the obviously all the government benefits are gone. Um, think about how people are going to react, and think about who they're blame. And again, I'm a political guy, and that's that's what fascinates me. Think about who's going to get blamed, and and then how that's going to play out. And it's going to be security wise a very unpleasant situation. And by the way, all these these people that are not resilient. Um, and are dependent. By the way, I'm a I'm a I'm a Gen Xer. Um, my my generation, you know, isn't exactly <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I am too. We are we're about the same age. Yeah, and you know, we're not a bunch of hardy mountain men. Um, and 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 there's going to be people who have, who have no idea how to cook, let alone how to grow food. I'm talking about how to cook. Here's here's a little experiment for everybody. Um, my my teenage kids. Um, Show them a can opener. Ask them what it's for. I don't know. Think they don't. Now, and that's canned food, commercially canned food. You know, you're they don't like, know how to get in the can. They don't know how to get in the can. Um, I put a bunch of dollar store can openers. By the way, that dollar store project is fantastic because it's <laughs> an awesome place. Bunch of dollar store can openers in all my tubs of food. You know, because some of it's number ten tins and stuff. Cause yeah. I, this would be a pretty long day if you didn't have a can opener. And I thought to myself. Shoot, do I need to print out some directions from the internet about how to use a can opener? Can opener. It's a serious question. So yeah. so we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of really bad off people, but from that I think will come, you know, some reality, some cold hard truth, and somebody's gonna say, Listen, you know, work for me, I'll treat you fair and I'll feed you and, and and put you up and we're gonna build some stuff and we're gonna sell some stuff for hard money and slowly but surely, you know, we come back. Um and it has to happen. There has to be a reset because this is this is beyond phony and false, this economy. It's 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 uh 
La La Land. It's some weird Kardashian episode where nothing is real. That's what's going on with the economy, in my opinion. Oh, I completely agree with you. Now, most people that talk like you and I are telling people, get ready now, and not the way we are, but like, get ready now, get ready now. You know, uh, who's our favorite shock jock? They're coming to get your children, that that kind of crap, right? Um, and then I think you and I are in agreement that this is not happening tomorrow. In some ways, it's currently ongoing, but the, the, there is actually going to be what I keep calling a major boom cycle over the next five to ten years that's going to basically be all the financial elites loading up the casino tables one more time. And when people ask me why I believe that, my, my simple answer is because they can. So why wouldn't they? Yep. Well, and they've done it in in every country to to a extra extent. I mean, that's and eight was about. I mean, that was loaded up, and that was a bubble, and that came bursting down. Here's the other reason I think that'll happen. It's the only card they have left. It's the only way to squeeze as much out of the world economy as they possibly can. You know what? It worked for them, creating bubbles and riding and making money as they ride up, right? As the prices and values go up, and then making money as things crash and they buy it back up again. You know, long selling and short selling and making money on both sides. It works, Jack. Why wouldn't you do it if you were them? And so it's going to happen again. And as you you can see the. Um, the measures, and just look at the U.S. if you want to just focus on the U.S. because those are the headlines we're most familiar with. The, the measures that are taken keep getting more and more extreme. The booms and the busts keep getting more and more extreme because this, you know, it's like, a, it's like an airplane that's, that's in a spiral. Every, you know, every move uh, keeps getting more and more kind of exaggerated. And, yeah, it's what they're going to do. And there's a ton of political reasons. That was the economic side. And looking at the political side... Both parties want to say, hey, stuff was really bad, but I made it better because I've got the great ideas and listen to me and vote for me. And we've seen, my goodness gracious, we've seen, especially during the Obama administration, how the government, the federal government, state governments can do stuff, manipulate things, have, um, do a variety of things to, to make things seem like the economy is going better. Like we're going to create green jobs and we're basically going to give a bunch of money to General Motors or General Electric, well, both of them actually, and um, you know have the government buy fleets of electric cars that have batteries that catch on fire and that are toxic landfills. So we're going to do these kind of hokey gimmicky things. And hey, we'll do things like we'll give GM money yeah. uh, and we'll call it a loan. And then we'll tell people in six months they paid it back. We won't tell them we gave them other money with which to pay back the loan. Yep, and everybody's happy because the United Auto Workers run TV ads in swing states like Ohio in 2008 and, well, 2012, actually, 2012, saying, you know, thank you, President. Obama for saving auto jobs because look at all these auto jobs we have and they have all these smiling people and everybody feels really good because we're back because we're America and we're awesome and we're back and that's the political message in a nutshell and it's and it works it works Saturday. sure it does this is what people don't get I keep trying to explain that the, the terminal cancer that is a fractional reserve system it is a cancer and you have to look at it like a cancer and people understand perfectly well that you or I right now, God forbid that we do, but either one of us could have a cancer growing inside of us. If it's only growing in certain systems right now, we could appear perfectly healthy and even being screened, they may not find it. That cancer eventually catches up with you and kills you. 
This is how an economic system like we have works. It's like a cancer, and you can radiate it, you can chemotherapy it, you can cut parts out of it, and you can keep extending the life of the patient. But in the end, it's going to flare. And people are looking at it like Ebola, and they're waiting for it to happen any second. And they don't realize this is a very long cyclical disease. But when you have somebody that's been taken to the brink, irradiated, and, and given a clean bill of health, when it comes back in that, that, that last push, that's when there's really a problem. That's what I see happening. We've just given the patient radiation, chemo, and a whole bunch of steroids, and we've got the patient breathing again, and his hair's growing back, and everybody's going to pat him on the back and say, boy, that was a close one, Joe. But we all know that that can come back, and in the case of our economy, it has to. But I think you can get just as hurt if you think this is bird flu versus cancer as you can if you think it doesn't exist at all. Yep, and, and people who are you know waiting for the world to collapse in the next 18 minutes um, are going to make bad decisions. But there's, there's opportunities um, for us, I think, in this time frame you're talking about. There'll be another boom. Um, and and we can profit. Oh my goodness, what a terrible word. I mean, we can. Let's say let's say stocks that we own go up. You mentioned a little profit taking um, right before things go, and we can do that. We have more time, which is a wonderful thing. There's no amount of money you can put on time. We have more time, especially while things seem to be going well, to go ahead and prep extra hard. And here's the challenge that everybody faces. Let's say stock market's doing great. Let's say they're all the, by the way, stock market, totally phony. The Dow, I mean, you know, the Dow companies are all made up and the values are made up and they all get Federal Reserve money. So the stock, the Dow Jones Industrial is just a joke. But anyway, the Dow is up. Everyone's feeling good. Um, people are getting reelected because everything's awesome. That is time to double down on prepping and not to say, huh, what could go wrong? Um, I was kind of worried and, and everything. And it's also a time to not get all down and out and, and glum and gloomy. Take this advantage. Um, maybe, maybe you get a better job because the economy is going well and take the money and get ready for what is inevitably coming. What an amazing opportunity we've been given with this fake, uh, fake boom that's going to be coming. Um, you got to utilize it. You've got to use it. I mean, you, you know, you've been given an advantage, um, and you have to, you have to take take that advantage. Not just for you, not just to make money and buy big screen TVs. You need to take advantage of this opportunity to put stuff away and be prepared for you and your family and your friends. That's what matters, not big screen TVs. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. And I mean, people think I'm crazy about this. And I, I was telling you, and I think this is something that no, you don't hear about this in the news, and you should. One of the largest construction projects in the history of mankind is going on right now in a place I spent a little bit of time, two years in fact, Panama, to enlarge the Panama Canal. And one of the reasons this is being done is because this country is about to, to, to fart more natural gas than, than, than people could even get their head around. I mean, they're pumping gas out from underneath people's houses all over America now. They've got these new extraction methods. And, and don't, let's not go down the green versus, you know, clean energy versus dirty energy debate because they're doing it. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I don't care. It's happening. And I have to analyze what's happening when it comes to planning for the future. So the reason that they're doing this is if you look at what it takes to ship gas across the ocean, it's, it, 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 it's, it's an immense sized vessel that does this. 
And we look at gas as being very cheap here. It's very profitable to sell natural gas in China. They need energy. They're willing to pay for it. And boy, they've got a problem with dirt from the, because the way, main way they make their energy is coal. So they are itching for, for this natural gas. The Chinese are funding about half of the cost of this project. And it's being done under the table to make it look like it's, it's Brazil doing it. Yeah, Brazil's funding it, sure. And so they can sell a little bit of their natural gas to Tobago because that's worth enlarging the Panama Canal for, right? Uh, so this country is about to start in the next five years exporting massive quantities of natural gas to China. That's going to swing the trade imbalance on, on some levels. Now, they're going to produce more shit with it and send it back to us, of course. And this giant canal will let their big giant freighters come in and bring more garbage into our ports. But if that's a global economic plan, if that's China and, and, and the Panamanians cooperating and, and some of the World Bank players cooperating, then clearly they know that this is coming. That's, to me, that's a huge part of our boom cycle that's about to occur. Yeah, and when you have cheap energy – and by the way, I could see liquefied natural gas you know, filling stations. I mean you, know, you can't mm. can run vehicles on it. It's coming, definitely. We'll see more of that, and you know, great. That's terrific. Um, or do you know? Do you know this? We're pumping more oil than at any time in history in this country. Yep. Where do you hear that? So all the people that bought into Obama's bullshit believe that he is keeping down all this stuff. And what he did is he kept it down in areas that were high profile areas and ignored everything else. So when they do report, they're like, in spite of Obama, yeah, sure, right? This is like because this is this is not bad for a, for a second term president to have all of this energy coming out of the ground. So he got the pander to the environmentalists and get the oil and gas out of the ground at the same time. And how could Obama do this over Bush? The answer is the media would not run any news story during Obama's reelection in 2012 about. Sure. And four bucks, and when Bush was doing it, was was not running for re-election. When I guess McCain was running, all we heard about was dollar sixty-seven gas. Can you believe how high gas is? So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And again, I'm focusing on the politics, but you're exactly right. So there's tons and tons of natural gas out there, um, and it starts getting into the economy. Energy prices go down. Energy prices go down. That means that all the other prices go down and and it looks like there's even less inflation there are all kinds of jobs everything's awesome isn't this great we're back on, back on top america's number one wahoo yeah but it's gonna go away pretty soon now here's what happens then so this is the other side of that so everything gets built on the cheap energy ideal everything's humming along little blip comes in the road Inflation starts to rear its head, so you get basically a flat inflation. It's really a deflation cycle because when you're going nowhere, you're going down because the underlying inflation is still on the back end. As that inflation starts to kick in, profits for companies, like they are right now, by the way, go to all-time highs, and then there's more, and the money flows harder and harder and harder. Sooner or later, the inflation pushes into that energy market, and when the cost of the energy hits – in the middle of a boom, you get a bust. And, and, and I believe that that's far enough out with enough U.S. domestic debt and enough insolvent cities and municipalities that when it hits that time around, it is the big pop because it will uncover everything else. And the reality, you talk about boom and bust cycles, they're going to inflate a money bubble. Because like you said, it's the last thing they have to inflate. There's nothing else to inflate. They've inflated everything. So now the only thing to inflate is money. So when that bubble pops, what do you do next? Yeah. Well, you revalue currency. Uh, you <laughs> you got to start over, right? 
you pack up shop and you hope your your riot control people can protect you. That's what you do. I mean, that's 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 the end of the line for that. I mean, there's no traditional economy. I mean, one will spring back, but yeah, that's the end of it. And another important point is all this is happening. You know, this boom is ramping up, and we're getting cheap energy, and we're relying on it, and everything's good. As that time marches on, while all this is happening during that period. What do you have? Well, Chicago, for example, and pension liabilities. Those keep going up. All these unfunded liabilities at the federal and the state and local government level keep going up and up and up. But see, you can paper over it. You can mask it. Everything's okay. Hey, hey, gas, you know, well, natural gas to run, you know, my SUV is like, you know, 80 cents a gallon or something. So what could go wrong? This is awesome. Hey, did you hear that the Chicago pension liability is now 400 million? Uh, or 400 billion or something like that, and you know, yeah, it doesn't even matter, whatever. And see, and then that happens, and then that is another reason that when the when the bust hits, when the bubble bursts, it's even worse because all the bad stuff's been going on in the background, and nobody noticed or cared, but it's still there. Yeah, the cancer was eating your bones. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, uh, people say, like, how would you fix it? And even at this point, okay, if you came to me, right, and you said, Jack, I want to get in a better shape, and we just had a phone conversation, I'd be like, yeah, come on over. We'll talk about what you could do with a diet and exercise and financially. And you said, I want everything better in my life. And I said, great, come on over. So when you come over, they have to get a freaking special piece of equipment to get you out of your vehicle because you're 600 pounds. Uh, you're a, a, a massive type 2 diabetic. Uh, you're 70 years old, by the way. You have three different forms of cancer, and you're on 200 different medications for you know your liver, your heart, everything else. And you say, okay, where do we start? Do you know what I have to tell you? Dig a grave. You're, screw- you're screwed. Yeah. There's nothing I can do for you. That is our economy. But what we did is we shoved the fat guy into a good look inside a good looking guy with a good looking suit. So he's going to walk around and he's going to be okay for a while. But that fat guy with 47 diseases. It's 70 years old. That's that's the inside. That's what our economy really looks like. We just dressed them up. And at this point, there absolutely isn't anything I could do to fix it. Nobody can fix it. If you try to fix it, all you're going to do is hasten the end. Because there's there, what way is there out of $16 trillion worth of debt? How do you look a, a, a country in the face and say, don't worry, we owe most of it to ourselves? Oh, that's great. Right. First of all, it's a lie. Okay. Second of all, well, what do you mean we owe it to ourselves? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Gee, what happens when we can't pay that? And then there's the number that no one ever wants to talk about. And I'm going to look it up right now so I don't get it wrong. But unfunded liabilities. Now, everybody talks about the debt, but the unfunded liabilities are all the money that we've already spent but we're not spending it yet. We've, we've earmarked it for spending in the future for things like Medicare, Medicaid, and all of these other wonderful government programs to save the world. The total U.S. unfunded liabilities right now is $123 trillion in growing. And in essence, that should be the number we're calling the debt because we've already committed to spending it. Yep, and people have relied on it, and people are going to be mad as hell when they don't get their And then everything breaks apart because nobody trusts anybody. Nobody trusts institutions. Nobody trusts politicians, and they ought not to trust politicians. But nobody trusts anything anymore, and people say, oh, my goodness, you know, 
this this has all been this has all been a lie. This has all been a joke. And that's when bad things, not just economically, I'm talking security wise, that's when bad things happen. And it, it, it's exactly what it has to happen. It's a mathematical situation. I've heard the 120 or so trillion dollar figure. I think these are credible sources. This is a comptroller, former comptroller of Congress. This is a, a realistic guy. This is not a crackpot putting the figure above $100 trillion. There's no denying it. Nobody is going to say, uh, you're wrong, there, there are no unfunded liabilities, or there are a lot less than $100 trillion. They won't say that to you. You know what they'll say? The only thing they've got, they'll say, you're crazy. You must be one of those prepper nut jobs. That's the only response they have. <laughs> Which is marginalizing the issue because you can't discuss the issue. So, like, I mean, when we look at that, you really start to get a picture. So, we look at the national debt, sixteen point seven trillion. That's a number that people will at least acknowledge and not say you're crazy for pointing out. They'll just say it doesn't matter. And we start breaking that down and say, well, how much does every citizen owe? That's fifty three thousand dollars. But that's a number a citizen could conceivably come up with over a lifetime to pay into the system. But not everybody pays into the system. So what we really need to say is how many people are taxpayers and what does every taxpayer owe? $147,000 every taxpayer owes. Okay, well still, you know, most people have houses that are worth more than that. Take that over to unfunded liabilities. And the liability per taxpayer in the United States of America is $1,088,000. Holy smokes. That's how much we all have to come up with between now and 2050 to cover the bill if we pay taxes. The total assets average, because they say, well, it's a wealthy country. We can sort that out. If you take the assets per citizen, total value of the country, 295000 So anybody that knows how to run a business and look at financials knows you want to look at assets and liabilities and capital on a balance sheet. So we have a liability of a million and an asset column of 300000 And the capital's fake. That's so there's if you analyze this this country as a company and each of us as an individual shareholder, that's our stake in the economy. Fake capital, a bit, a, a, a million dollars worth of liability and three hundred thousand dollars worth of assets, which means basically the net sum we all owe seven hundred grand. You know, it's 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 amazing when I uh, when my daughter was 14 and she's in the book. And yes, she really is a uh, a. Um, a redhead who's got an attitude and is pretty mean with an AK-74. So she's just like in the book. But anyway, I I told her when she was 14 about the hundred or so, hundred and forty thousand dollar figure, roughly. I said, "This is this is what you're going to you know be handed off." And you know what she said? She said the most amazing thing. She said, "Huh, Dad, that's that's like a house that I've bought but I don't get to live in." I said, exactly right, dear. That's exactly what you've been saddled with. You're making house payments, and you don't get to live there. <laughs> she gets that's it. Ex- she does get it. And, boy, that's and, – and, and the sad thing is by the time she's on the hook for it, that won't buy any kind of a house. Yeah, that'll be a rent payment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the neat thing with the, the debt clock is you can go forward. So you say, well, what is the, uh, you know, is this going to get any better anytime soon? And the unfunded liability figure by, by 2017 runs up to $151 trillion, which means we all owe uh, $1.2 million. And that's what we're expected to come up with on average per taxpayer over our working life, $1.2 million, or the bills don't get paid, or we borrow it. Well, so we borrow half of it. We still got to come up with what six hundred k a piece. 
And that whole borrowing thing kind of breaks down because you mentioned a company, a million dollars worth of liabilities, $300,000 worth of assets. Uh, you walk into a bank and ask for a loan, uh, they're going to laugh and, and it's not going to be pretty. Who in their right mind, what country or individual or company or corporation in their right mind would possibly, possibly loan money to the United States of America? Why would you? You know, and we've already seen kind of indirect evidence. I'm not going to say direct stuff, but some countries, including China, you know, paring back and not buying as much of our debt. Um, and why would you? Well, they actually have a reason to because they have, they got a bunch of dollars they got nothing to do with, or they have they need to spend it on something. And they might as well prop us up and own a bunch more of our our country and get. Goodness knows what kind of political and strategic advantages that come with them owning us. Um, but, you know, this idea that things will be fine because things are fine now. Well, one of the reasons things look fine now is that we borrow all this money from all these companies, uh, countries, pardon me, uh, Japanese included. Um, and at some point, they're going to have their own problems. I mean, the Chinese economy is doing some very weird and bad things right now. Japan is purposefully inflating their currency, and they're going to they're going to have some bad times ahead. They're not going to; those countries aren't going to have the money to keep buying our debt, which is to say, keep loaning us money. So this thing only kind of works if we've got this this amazing line of credit. You know, this company you were talking about. Uh, with the million dollar liability and the three hundred thousand dollars of assets, it kind of works with a line of credit, but that line of credit is getting turned off slowly but surely, and it could get turned off dramatically. When are the Chinese in particular going to realize that they're not getting paid back? They're already not buying bonds. So right now, we're already there. The only reason we're able to pull this off today is we cheat and the Fed buys our own debt from us. Yeah, with, with a journal entry. We're, we're, and when people say we're printing money, that's how you want another start. I, I've always said I'm going to do a debt clock day, just a whole day. But I feel like if I do it, I'll puke by the time I'm done with the episode. How about this? By projecting into the future on this day in 2017, our debt to GDP ratio in the United States, 136 percent. Yep. So everything we owe is 136 percent of what we produce in a year. And by the way, that GDP figure is so phony because you know what counts as part of the gross domestic the fed itself the fed itself 16 percent this year <laughs> exactly right so making up zeros and ones on on an account and loaning it to a bank and then the bank quote paying it back um and then the fed doing it over and over again the fed federal reserve sending zeros and ones on an account to the u.s treasury department and and buying U.S. bonds and then holding them, all this counts as 16% of the economy. When I think of the gross domestic product, I'm thinking about manufacturing and people earning money, I mean real money, doing real stuff. Oh, no, no, that doesn't even count. So it's, it's even worse than that. That's how phony and fake everything is. We count zeros and ones going between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department as, as you know, trillions of dollars of, quote, economic activity. What a joke. See, and I think the reason we get away with this for right now is because the dollar is the reserve currency and because, you know, they say, like, if, you're, if you get on a lifeboat and a ship's going down, you've got to get the lifeboat the hell away from the ship because the ship will pull you down with it. And, and it can't, I mean, that was actually Mythbusters did that and proved that can happen. That's the United States right now. Everybody's, like, rowing their ass off in a lifeboat to get the hell away from us and, honestly, us and Europe. It's like the USS European North American Titanic in one 
And all of the rest of the, the, these nations, just like any hegemon group of nations is saying, we got to get our shit together, but they can't pull the plug on us right now because they're attached to the same life support system. So that's when you see things like the BRICS banking system and all being put into place. These guys know they got about 10 years to get their shit together, and if they don't do it, they're going down with us. But it also means when they get themselves to a point where they can actually figure out how to run things without us, you're on your own, buddy. I mean, I think I think half of the world is going to turn to the United States. It's not going to be a big war. It's not going to be a big fight. China's not going to try to repossess California from us or something. They're just going to go, see it. And when you get your shit together, come back, and, and we'll talk about making you part of the global economy again. Yep, and I think a lot of countries, Russia and China in particular, are going to enjoy that day because they've got sure they scratching their heads thinking, how is it that you guys got to run this place for several decades, or this place meaning the world? And they're going to say, we never liked you guys, and uh, we just put up with your crap, and uh, adios, uh, it's been nice knowing you. Yep, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, because why would, why would you do anything differently if you were the rest of the world? And I'm not saying they're all a bunch of nice guys. I'm not saying I want to go hang out with Putin. You know, I'm not saying I want to go live in Beijing. But I am saying that at this point, it seems like they've accepted the reality that it is the future, and at least they're preparing for it. And the only thing our government seems to be preparing for is to keep us down when we get pissed off. Yep, and, you know, Department of Homeland Security buying 1.6 billion rounds of 40 cal hollow point. What do you use hollow point for? Not training. I mean, and that's real. That's not made up. You know all that. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's that's the only, much like the, the big bubble, that's kind of the only play that's left. And, and by the way, for reasons that go into in the book, and it's all in there, you know, I don't think Homeland Security could pull that off. I don't think they got the people... Um, you know, to pull the triggers um, uh, on those 1.6 billion rounds, and I think the good guys would steal a good chunk of them and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm not implying, you know, FEMA death camps. I'm not going that direction. I'm just saying that the only sort of domestic political card that the federal government has left is is to try to control the population because that's about the only thing they're going to have any control over, and it's still not going to work. And there's going to be places where, as much as people are opposed to the concept. You're going to need it. I mean, people say, you know, I've had people say to me, Jack, I just don't think U.S. troops will, uh, will fire on U.S. citizens. And I'm like, you know, arson, murder, rape, these are high crimes, right? If that's what's going on in downtown South Central Los Angeles, and I don't mean the way it does every day, I mean in a large scale, of course people will fire on that group of people. And the problem is it'll start out with that group, and it rapidly, it's like, uh, it's, it's like any riot. You know, it always starts out with one or two ass clowns, and then people just kind of jump on board. Well, that can happen on both sides of an issue. It's not just the people causing trouble. The people on the suppression side that are legitimately there to try to keep them from burning the whole city down, once the shooting starts, they can cascade into the same type of a failure system. Yep, and there, there are a couple characters in the book. I won't you know, go into it and, and name names or anything and ruin anything, but there are a couple... Um uh, law enforcement officers who start off saying, my goodness, I'm here to serve and protect. They're good, decent people. They're sheepdogs. And they say, my goodness, there's, there's civil unrest, there's rioting going on. I need to help. And they help, and they, they beat some stuff back. And then they're being asked to uh, go and round up these, these dang teabagger so-called patriot guys. And that's when they start scratching their head and saying, I didn't sign up for this. And I think there's going to sure. be a lot of that. I have a lot of faith. You and I share this, I think. Uh, good chunks of the military and law enforcement communities 
um, are going to do the right thing, and maybe not initially, but um, in the medium to long term, they they probably will, and there'll be plenty of them that don't, and all that other stuff. But um, yeah, I I see that as another thing that ends up saving this place, and I know that's kind of unpopular with you know some folks in in the prepper community. Um, they 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 think all law enforcement and all military are bad, and and I disagree. Um, there are some that are, but. Yeah, we're going to see all kinds of weird stuff. People you thought you knew are going to do things you didn't expect, both good and bad. It's it's how it happens all over the place. America's no different than anywhere else in the world, um, with some exceptions. You know, we are human beings, and human beings react to bad things in in sort of predictable ways. And we're we just haven't seen those sort of predictable ways because we haven't had any bad stuff to react to in several generations. I want to finish up because I know you got to run here in less than 10. So, but I do want to kind of finish up with the concept of oath keepers because that makes a, a an appearance in, in, in your book eventually, or your books, I should say. And I wanted to tell you two stories real quick that, that give me hope. One, I got pulled over in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, doing like 51 and a 35. So I figured I was going to get a ticket. I was nice to the guy. He was nice to me as a local sheriff. I'm like, it's a big truck. I came over the hill. He goes, yeah, that's why I sit here. You weren't going that fast. I'm going to let you off of the warning as long as all your stuff checks out. And it does, and he goes to walk away. He gets to the, the, the bumper of my, my big red truck, and he spins around 180 degrees. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know this is not. You're thinking, what did I do? Everything. So he comes back up, and he just looks in my truck, and he goes, I, I do, and I always will. And he turned around and walked away. And I drove off, and I'm thinking, what? You know, and you're being careful. You make sure you do nothing wrong when the guy's still behind you, and you get to the stop sign, and you go left, you hope he goes right. <laughs> and he does, and I'm still thinking, and I got almost all the way to my office, and I thought to myself, the Oath Keeper sticker in the back of my window of my truck. Yep. That's what he was talking. And that gives me hope because there's a local sheriff in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Now, yesterday, I felt really good about this area that I've picked. I went to Lowe's to pick up some stuff. I built a floor in what's going to be our chicken coop. And I come out, and I see this big black diesel truck with an Oath Keeper sticker on the window. I'm like, cool. I didn't get to my truck before I saw another vehicle with another Oath Keeper's sticker. So now you've got three Oath Keeper vehicles parked at the local load <laughs> in the same parking lot, and everybody is in there, and it was on the, the section. I, even though I went to get lumber, I parked on the section with, like, all the uh, gardening stuff. So you got three Oath Keepers that are there probably so that they can get some plants and stuff like that to get their gardens in in one parking lot at one time in the middle of a Monday afternoon. And I'm thinking, this is a case for optimism right here. Oh, Jack, I can I – can echo that i have met uh, been contacted by the most amazing people military and law enforcement people some you know everything from special operations people to to regular old police officers and everybody in between and the the amount of support out there for oath keepers is is amazing i mean almost every day i get an email or something on facebook and i say to myself Oh my goodness, thank goodness. I mean, there are so many good people out there and they're getting more and more vocal. Um it's it's not something to hide anymore. I think it was even a few months ago, uh, certainly a year ago. Uh it was a bad career move um to even mention this stuff and it's coming out more and more in the open, which is a political guy. I'm always paying attention to who's going to stand up for something because that tells you a lot of, about how much support it has. And the the oath keepers in this country, whether they're in the organization or they just believe in it, you know, they don't have a membership card necessarily, are gonna 
are going to do amazing things. They're already doing amazing things, and and it's it's very hopeful. It's very optimistic. Yeah, I completely agree, and I, I will say that it's definitely becoming more and more prominent. I love the work Stuart Rhodes is doing, and it, it's interesting that I have had conversations with some Leos, and particularly people that I know fairly well when I've talked about it, and they've had kind of a stigma about it. Many of them have been told it's a bad thing, it's an evil thing. And I and I said, do you even understand, to one of them in particular, uh, who I have a, a family relationship with, what it is? And he went on and on, I'm like, no, that's that's not, it's basically... Ten things you will never do, and all of them would be in direct violation to the oath you took when you became an officer. He said, well, we would never do that. I said, then why wouldn't you stand up and reaffirm that? Right. And that was like, well, uh, 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 let's talk about the Cowboys and the Steelers. Right? We, <laughs> we, you know, it's like uh, I don't want to go there because, you know, and that's always when somebody knows they don't have a good answer for something. That's when it's always like, well, uh, let, let's do something else now because I can't answer that. Because I know where the answer leads, and I'm not comfortable going there. Yeah. A lot of folks having this conversation. Anyway, man, I appreciate having you here. Uh, again, uh, the book series, 299 Days, and where, pe- where can people get it, learn more about it, interact with you, that type of thing, Glenn? Yeah, Amazon is the best place. Just type in 299 Days, and uh, there are five books, so if one or two come up, um, you know, look for more, right? I'd suggest you start with one, although you can pick up any one of them, and, and it'll start off, and, you know, it'll be understandable. Um, the website, 299days.com, I put up a lot of pictures and interesting stuff. People send me things, um, you know, all kinds of interesting, cool stuff, and uh I'm on Facebook, um, Glenn Tate, and also 299 Days, the book, on Facebook. And I uh, love interacting with people. Um, I answer every email uh, I get because I'm still amazed that people want to spend their time and a little bit of their money to hear my deepest thoughts. I just I can't even believe it. And so I, I love talking to people. So get a hold of me. I appreciate it. Very cool. Be careful what you ask for, though. You know what happened to uh, Tim Ferriss and Gary Vaynerchuk with that approach. <laughs> no, I don't. They, they hit a critical mass where they couldn't do it anymore, but I guess that's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it is tough. I try to do it, too. When I started the show, I answered every single email, and it's like I just logistically – it's not that I don't care. I can't do it anymore, um, but I try to still do a lot of it, and it's great to see you doing the same thing because – I, I think that authors, content creators, etc., really need in this day and age, with things being the way they are, to be more accessible. Um, you know, and, and you know, Ferris and Vaynerchuk still try to do that. They're in a different world than we are genre-wise. But I think that's what's making people successful today that would never have been successful at another time. And I'm, I'm glad to see you doing that. But that's probably a subject for another podcast. <laughs> yep. All right, Glenn. Hey, man, I appreciate you being with us again. I always appreciate the insider view. We didn't really go into it deeply, folks, but I do want to point out that uh, Glenn is a uh, is a pen name for another name that I will not name uh, with a seat right inside the belly of the beast in uh, Washington State and a political position as an attorney. And the things that you heard today come from that viewpoint. And, dude, thanks for, for being willing to stick your neck out and do that. Thanks. It's, it's been the greatest honor of my life to do this. Thank you for having me on and getting me out and getting to talk to people. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Time.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.